We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. As we began this series last uh, fall, we started, if you might, some of you might remember, with Exodus 33, and with Moses in his exchange with God after the, the incident of the golden calf. Remember that they were waiting for Moses to come down off the mountain, and they got impatient, and so they built this golden, made this golden calf, which would be something more tangible that they could worship with, and they engaged in revelry, and Moses comes down off the mountain and is upset. And then God basically says to Moses, look, you can still go to the promised land. In fact, I'll send my angel to lead you on the way, but I'm not going to go with you because I'm concerned that you are so stiff-necked that I will consume you, God says, because of his holiness. And there's this wonderful moment where Moses, as the leader of the people of God, is, is bargaining with God, and he basically gives us this great insight, which is an insight that really cuts to the heart of what truth is and who we are as human beings. He says, look, God, we're not really interested in the promised land if we can't have you. You have to go with us. And basically what Moses is saying is, look, Lord, we can have everything else in the world, but if we don't have you, we have nothing. We don't want the land flowing with milk and honey if we don't have you because you, God, are the one who makes us distinct, he says, among all the peoples of the world. It's your presence that is what makes us who we are. He knows that it's essential. And honestly, this presence of God is what we need as well. It's still uh, our greatest need and our greatest desire, our greatest hope, as we, we long for God's presence more than anything else, more than anything that you think as you walk in today, what you need or what you want in life. The most significant thing, the most desirable thing, the most needed thing, For every one of us is the presence of God. We're going to look at Leviticus 24, specifically verses 1 through 9. I'll touch a little bit on the rest of the chapter, which is actually quite difficult. Um, And to think about this idea of the presence of God, of his provision of his presence. And so we'll consider this in five brief parts. First, the blessing of his continual presence, then the purpose, then the warning, the fulfillment and the practice of God's presence. So the blessing, the blessing of God's continual presence, verses 1 through 9, Leviticus 24. Two, little part, two parts here. The first is about the lampstand and the lamps. The second is about the bread of the presence in the tabernacle. And they go together to make one garment, one piece. In verses 1 through 4, the, the people are commanded to bring olive oil, and this would have been the most costly kind of oil, pure oil, so that the seven lamps on the lampstand in the holy place could continually be lit and burn before the Lord. This lampstand is called the menorah, which most of us know is the seven-branched uh, uh, reality that is the lampstand that was found in the holy place. And the continual burning is to take place at night, as verse 3 says, from evening to morning. So this is about Aaron arranging the lamps and having them running night after night. And then the second bit from verses 5 to 9 is about this bread that the people of Israel commanded to bake, 12 loaves, and then they're to put those, the, the priest is to put those loaves on the table 
in the holy place every Sabbath day. It is to be set before the Lord regularly or continually. That word is a theme of this text. The bread is from the people of Israel, we read in verse 8, as a covenant forever. This bread, like the Sabbath day on which it is placed in the tabernacle, is a sign of the covenant between God and his people. It signifies that covenant. So this picture in Leviticus 24, 1 through 9, of the light burning continually and the bread of the presence being on the table continually is a glorious, symbolic, and perhaps in many ways climactic picture in the book of Leviticus. The light of the lamp burns continually. That light depicts the continual presence of God among his people, even shining upon his people. Because these 12 loaves baked fresh week after week and put on the table represent the 12 tribes of Israel, much like the two stones, one on each shoulder of the high priest's garments that have on each side six of the tribes of Israel named to represent the people of God before uh, their covenant king through their high priest. So also these 12 loaves symbolically represent the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. This bread of the presence, as it's called in Exodus 25, is to be arranged every Sabbath day before the Lord. And there's an important detail in a parallel passage from Numbers chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, that shows us something about this, the, the, the situation that's presented here in Leviticus 24. Aaron is told when he sets up the seven lamps to set them up such that they shall give light in front of the lampstand. That is that the light from these lamps will shine forward from the menorah. If you were to walk into the holy place in the tabernacle, you would be entering a room that's 30 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. The ceiling would be 15 feet above you. And then straight in front of you at the end of the 30 feet was the, the embroidered curtain with cherubim on it that was guarding the holy of holies from the holy place. And right in front of that curtain, there would be the altar of incense, regularly used with incense burning before the Lord. On your left, to the south side of this room, there would be the menorah, the lampstand with seven lamps. And then on your right, on the north side, there would be the table of the bread of, of the presence. So when Aaron is instructed in Numbers 8 to ensure that the lamp's light is shining forward, what he's being told is to ensure that the light of the lamps is shining on the bread of the presence. And what we get from that picture is that this is right here at the heart of Israel's worship, in the heart of the tabernacle. This is a picture of the reality of God's continual presence shining down upon his people. God's presence is the light, like his presence was represented by fire in the burning bush in Exodus 3, and the people of God are represented by the 12 loaves of bread. So here is God's presence continually shining down upon his people. And uh, Gordon Wenham says this, he says, the arrangement portrayed visually God's intention that his people should live continually in his presence and enjoy the blessing mediated by his priests. Priests were the ones to light the lamps and set the bread. Well, what we see here is the, this first point about the blessing is that God has restored in a way provided in Leviticus, this has been the theme of our series, a way for his people to dwell in his presence, God with us. God longs to dwell with his people. And this dwelling of God and his people is renewed Sabbath by Sabbath in this weekly rhythm 
also reinforced by the annual rhythms of the feasts that we looked at in Leviticus 23 last week. This is about God's people enjoying, basking in God's presence in God's house, which is actually, and we've seen this theme over and over again, a restoration of God's design in creation. God's people enjoying God's presence in God's house is what creation was intended and created to be in the Garden of Eden. There was humanity dwelling in the presence of God in God's house, enjoying God's presence. And that was fractured and broken by sin. We were banished east of Eden. And we've seen that Leviticus is the answer to the Genesis problem of sin, that God is creating and making a way to be present again among his people through the tabernacle and the religious cult of Israel. God is present now among his people. And this is a restoration of what was originally intended at Eden in the garden long ago. There's a, there are a number of comparisons in our text, verses 1 through 9 of Leviticus 24 and Genesis 1 and 2. Let me just give you a few of them to make this point that this is a restoration of God's conditions and desires uh, at creation and its desires for humanity. The menorah is a, uh, a lampstand that's, in the, that's designed after a flowering almond tree. And this would bring to mind this, this burning plant, would, all, would bring to mind the burning bush in Exodus 3 for sure. But it also had symbolism that connects to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. This phrase in verse 3, if you've got the text open in Leviticus 24, that Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly, does that remind us of anything in terms of Genesis 1? And there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day. This evening to morning rhythm is picked up here as a, a hearkening back to Genesis 1 and creation. The idea of the Sabbath on the seventh day, of course, goes, uh, goes right back to the creation narrative. And God rests on the original Sabbath on the seventh day in Genesis 2, verse 3. And then also the word for light here in verse 2 of Leviticus 24 actually evokes the fivefold use of this exact same word to describe the celestial sources of light in Genesis 1 on day 4 of creation. These lights, which we're told in Genesis 1, were to mark the signs and the seasons. Well, that word for seasons is the same word we encountered last week, appointed feasts or festivals. And this light is then picked up here again in Leviticus 24. This is the longing of the people of God. It is to return to the presence of God. We see this throughout the Old Testament, actually. Probably the most well-known verse in the whole Psalter. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life in what? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord's people in the Lord's house enjoying the Lord's presence. And this is what God is restoring in this Levitical way that he has created for his people to dwell in his presence. And this is signified and symbolized in this uh, ritual at the heart of their Sabbath worship. One Old Testament scholar, Jeffrey Harper, says it like this. Thus, as Israel observed the appointed times, days, and years governed by the heavenly lights and stipulated in Leviticus 23 to 25, the nation would reorder itself along God-ordained lines and begin to recover the divine human intimacy which characterized the beginning of the world. The blessing of God's presence depicted here at the heart of Israel's worship. Let's think second about the purpose. The purpose. This is the culmination. We're reaching the end, as many of you are happy about. We're reaching the end of the book of Leviticus. And this is the culmination 
really, of all of the parts of Leviticus, and we get at the culmination this picture of God's presence continual shining upon his people. And it's as if to say that the purpose, there's a, there's a message here in the literary structure and having this here at Leviticus 24, that the purpose of this presence, while in fact it is the goal, God's desire is to dwell with us and us to dwell with him, God wants to be with you, and you, even if you don't know it, want to be with him. It is the goal. It is also, by virtue of its placement here in Leviticus, at the end of the holiness code, chapter 17 all the way to 25, but specifically up to 22, it's also the means by which we will attain that goal of continually residing in the presence of the Lord. Here's what I mean. This picture of a Sabbath day worship of God's presence shining upon his people on the bread is the means, Israel dwelling in God's presence, Sabbath by Sabbath by Sabbath. And of course, they dwelt in his presence throughout the week. The bread stays on the table the whole week, but it's renewed each Sabbath day as they cease from their labors and they give their attention to him and to his grace and his work in their lives. And that Sabbath by Sabbath renewal of being in his presence, of attending to God's presence and acknowledging his rescue and their identity as his, is the means by which they will fulfill the calling to be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Basking in his presence deepens their awareness of his love and power and grows them in the holiness that God longs for his people to have so that they can fulfill the vocation of being a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19, that God had given to them. So the purpose of the presence of God is, yes, an end in and of itself. It is the goal. It is. There's nothing higher than that than to be in his presence. But it is also the means by which we approach that goal further and further and more and more by basking in his presence. And so that's communicated to us here by virtue of its placement in this section at the end of Leviticus. This is how we grow. We understand this, don't we? We understand that we grow into holiness as we encounter and dwell in and delight in the Lord's presence more and more. So that's the purpose. Third, the warning. The warning comes in this. The rest of the, se of the, rest of the text, we're not going to dive into this deeply, of Leviticus 24, verses 10 through 23, is an account. It's a narrative. There's not much narrative. In fact, the last narrative bit was in chapters 8, 9, and 10, especially in 10, when Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu approach the Lord's presence with strange fire in the tabernacle, in the temple, and are struck dead because they didn't come on his terms at his invitation. Well, we have a similar account, a kind of sobering account here in Leviticus 24 about a man who's the son of an Israelite woman and an Egyptian father who gets into a fight with another Israelite. And then in verse 11, the son blasphemed the name and cursed. And by the end of the chapter, they wait upon the Lord for his instruction. This man is stoned to death by the congregation as a sign of God's judgment because of his being an affront to the covenant king in their presence. To dishonor, to drag the name of the king through the mud was the same thing as insulting him to his face. And it was to be met with the sternest of consequences by the people of God under God's command. You know, there's something about the presence of God and the name of God that are related. You might remember the high priestly ironic blessing in number 16. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord lift up his face upon you and be, or the Lord uh, make his face to shine upon you. There's light and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance or his face upon you and give you peace. And then we read after that blessing that the priests are to pronounce over the people of God. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. The Lord's name is a sign of his presence and his blessing of his power. And in a sense, outside of the sanctuary itself where God dwells, the name of the Lord is a kind of mobile sanctuary that is, goes with the people always. They are marked by his name, much as we are marked by the name Christian, by Christ. They were marked by the name of their God. And to insult or to blaspheme or to curse that name, to violate that name, is just like violating the sanctuary, the tabernacle present, the, the place of God's dwelling. And just as Nadab and Abihu were struck dead, so here this half-Israelite on the fringes of the camp is to be stoned by the congregation, to be put to death. And this is a kind of warning here in this text. There's a lot more in this, um, the, the lex talionis, the, this law of recompense, that the punishment should fit the crime, which is actually a, a, a kind of merciful law. We sometimes read it as barbaric. It's actually not. It's a, it's a sign of God saying, hey, Crimes and punishments should fit together, not be outlandish, as they often were in the ancient Near Eastern world. So there's more that we could say here, but the overarching point to say is that where God's presence resides, there is tremendous blessing, but there is also a solemn warning to the people of God. And in a sense, the two halves of Leviticus 24 kind of reveal, on the one hand, the ideal. Here is God's presence shining his light upon his people as they worship him in Sabbath devotion, remembering his covenant a sign of his covenant, versus on this side, this, this person who has taken the Lord's name in vain, violated the third commandment, and cursed the Lord himself. And instead, this side, we find life in the very presence of God, in the, in the tabernacle presence. Over here, we find death on the outsides of the camp at the end of Leviticus 24. They're clearly a foil for one another, opposites. And it's as if the author of Leviticus, God is teaching us through this book, this is what I want you to live into so beware not to sit light or casual, which has been a theme throughout this book, upon my presence and my name, he would say. And this doesn't actually go away in the New Testament. The presence of God remains a dangerous presence, which is why God said back in Exodus 33, look, I don't want to go with you, Moses, lest I consume you because you're a stiff-necked people. But in a similar way, we, we have these accounts in the New Testament of Ananias and Sapphira being struck dead in Acts 5 as the community's building, or, or the kind of enigmatic reality in 1 Corinthians 11 around the people of Corinth not discerning the Lord's body as they come to worship at the table, to share the Lord's Supper. And some of them, he said, have gotten sick and even died. So there's a sense in which the warning still pertains. And Paul picks this up in, a, in the passage we read in 2 Corinthians 6 and 7 as he calls them not to associate with, with, um, with those who are not part of the kingdom of God's people. And then he says, therefore, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's in the New Testament. Let's grow in this way. So Leviticus 24 gives us this glorious blessing and picture of the ideal, but also brings with it a warning. A warning. Don't be casual. Don't sit loose on this. But let his presence continue to lead you into his pathways to be his unique, holy people who are set apart. Fourth, the fulfillment. Everything, so we've seen the presence, the gift, the blessing, 
We've seen the, the purpose of that gift to grow them, the warning with that gift that comes along here in this chapter. But let's think now about the fulfillment because everything in Leviticus points beyond itself, obviously. Everything that God sets up here is pointing past itself to, to that glorious day that we know that will come. We look back on that day. It was a day into which even angels longed to look, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 12. This, the fulfillment of God's presence, continual presence, shining upon his people, has been fulfilled in the work of the great high priest, his son, Jesus. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What Israel enjoyed Sabbath after Sabbath at the tabernacle was just a foretaste of what was to come. Because now we are that tabernacle. We are the temple, as we read in 2 Corinthians 6, or in Ephesians 2, as it says, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are living in and basking in the light of God's continual presence, a presence that is mediated to us through the great high priest, Jesus, and given to us and in us in the person, power, and presence of God by virtue of the Holy Spirit, this gift poured out upon God's people at the Feast of Weeks or at Pentecost. All of this future fulfillment was symbolized in the menorah and the bread of presence, Sabbath by Sabbath in the people of God's worship long ago. But all that that symbolized has now been fulfilled in a real and climactic way for you and me as members of the new covenant people of God today. We have the gift, the greater gift of access to the continual presence of God because we are the dwelling place of God. Not actually this room, but we are the dwelling place of God, where the very holy presence of the Lord of glory dwells continually. What an awesome reality. Do you believe this? Let me just ask, do you believe that God is present continually in this way with all who belong to his son? That we are now that house into which God sends his spirit to dwell? We are the new temple do you know his presence in your life, this gift that has been given, this wonder of all wonders, this longing that we have for God? And we can experience, you might say, well, it's hard to experience in a life that's full of difficulties and challenges and pain and sorrow. Just a, a quick testimony from Brother Yoon, a, a Chinese pastor who had spent several years in prison and was uh, severely mistreated by the Chinese authorities. This is written about in a book called The Heavenly Man. He describes just the painful conditions in the prison for four years, and he says, though, then he says this. This is kind of his testimony. I was with Jesus, and I experienced his very real presence, joy, and peace every day. It's not those in prison for the sake of the gospel who suffer. The person who suffers is he who never experiences God's intimate presence. The desire of our Lord the possibility created by the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit is that he longs to be with us in every circumstance and situation. He said that he will never leave us, that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. Andrew Murray says it like this, Jesus Christ wants to live with you and to walk with you, that he may do his blessed work for you. He wants to be with you as your companion so that you never shall be alone. It's possible to have Christ at your side every moment, Jesus Christ is leader to show you the way in which to walk. Jesus Christ is companion to comfort you by his presence and make your heart glad. 
Jesus is, in fact, with us by his spirit. Murray says it is possible to have Christ at your side. I would actually change that to say it is true that Christ is at your side. He is, in fact, near to you and to me. And we cannot make him more present than he already is. But here's the question. Will we attend to him? So the fulfillment is great. The symbolic picture of Leviticus 24 has been more than super abundantly fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ for us to enjoy and bask in the very presence of God. My question to you as we bring it to the final point here of the practice is, will we attend to his presence? You might say, well, how do I experience the continual light of God's presence in my life? And I, and I would say, well, first, it's a gift that none of us deserve or earn. It's a gift that God graciously gives to his people, and he promises this gift to us. But then I'd say, well, let, let's learn a little bit again from Leviticus 23 and 24, which encourages rhythms that are daily and weekly and annual in the life of God's people. As we saw last week, these rhythms increase their awareness of who they are as the people of God and their awareness of God's presence in their lives. These annual feasts do that as well. These rhythms are moments when we actually stop. It's no, no accident, is it, that the, the primary sign of the covenant, the Sabbath day, means to cease. Israel was commanded to stop the machinery of the world, of their labor, so that they could bask together in the presence of God at his tabernacle. But something about ceasing is so important when we think about experiencing the presence of Christ today. It is to cease and to stop and to attend to his presence among us. They worshiped weekly on the Sabbath day. As we saw last week, the New Testament church shifted that because of the resurrection to start worshiping, gathering on the Lord's day, on the first day of the week. And in this gathering of the worship of God's people, we stop what we're doing out there and we give our attention to the Lord of glory himself, primarily by coming under his word and partaking in his sacraments, as we will do in a few minutes in the Lord's Supper. And, and this is the high point of our Continual life in the continual presence of God as the people of God, enjoying God's presence in the house of God. Together, as the people of God, we enjoy his presence. This habit that we have of gathering week after week is essential to knowing and experiencing God's presence. It is a discipline, you might say. And there are other habits as well, daily practices, that Christians throughout the last 2,000 years have developed and understood are key ways of attending to the very presence of God that God has freely given through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We call these typically spiritual disciplines, and they have individual disciplines and communal corporate disciplines like this one of gathering together Sunday after Sunday. And these are the way of wisdom underneath the grace of God, and the disciplines are meant to be ways in which we stop and we intentionally attend to the very presence of God in our lives. Again, he is always present, but will we attend to his presence? I might say in terms of practicing this presence, uh, something that will sound antiquated and trite, but here's how I'd say it. Go to church, read your Bible, and pray. <laughs> and I know it does sound a little bit trite, but the reality is, and, and I don't mean, especially if you're a teenager here and you're thinking, like, how, you know, what is this whole life supposed to be about? 
you know, maybe you're, you're, you're sometimes just a little disengaged at church. I don't mean to reduce the Christian life to just doing a few little tasks. That's not what I mean at all. The Christian life is fueled by rea- the reality and the, the awareness of God's deep love for you and for me. Of God's amazing gift of a sacrifice of his son that would really deal with the brokenness that every single one of us knows in our own hearts of our waywardness and our sin and our rebellion. And God dealt with that powerfully and decisively, and he set us free, and he rescued us, and he rescued us, and then he gave us himself. He gave us his very presence. All of this is what he does in the work of the gospel. Our coming to church and reading our Bibles and praying is simply a response, and it's a really poor response relative to the magnitude of the gift and the overwhelming abundance of God's goodness and grace to what God has done in our lives. That's what fuels this, and that's what drives our desire to gather in these kind of habitual methods and practices of the people of God to gather together, to hear from his word, to share. And this is a celebration of God's provision of his son on our behalf. This is a communing with his very presence that we desperately need. And we do this because of God's grace and work in our lives. And that's what fuels these practices that we call the disciplines. But we take them up, inspired and empowered by the spirit, as a means of practicing God's presence, of being attentive to his presence. And these practices spill into our everyday and mundane lives. They shape us and develop us as people who are listening to and walking with and communing with God. So much so that the New Testament says, hey, pray once a day. No, pray without ceasing. And that idea there is live your life like that bread in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, constantly in the presence of the living God. Bask in his presence in the light of his glory. I will say this, though, especially to teenagers out here, uh, but, but to all of us, it is much more challenging to attend to the presence of God than it is to watch YouTube or Netflix or to eat a meal or to hang out with a friend. All of those things are fine in God's economy when used in moderation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but all of those things are never as satisfying, life-giving, and deepening as attending to God's very presence as we are doing right now. This doesn't mean that we necessarily feel like Brother Yoon did when he was in prison for four years. And I want to say that our feelings in relation to experiencing the presence of God, our feelings are entirely unreliable and inconsistent. Not unimportant, but unreliable and inconsistent. We are so grateful for those moments that God gives us when we do feel his warming, gracious, embracing presence. I pray that those moments would not be few and far between in your life and in mine, but that we would experience God in that way day by day by day. But many times, and many saints who have gone before us and run the race have reflected on the fact that that's not always their experience. Yet God is present still. Perhaps it's then that even the, those rhythms that we've built into our lives become even more important because we just return to them habitually, knowing that God is present, even if you can't feel him in the moment. Let me close with a, a story of E. Stanley Jones in uh, his little book here that's from the 1920s, Christ of the Indian Road. He, he was... Um, a missionary, Methodist missionary in India. He had been there for eight years, and he was struggling deeply 
with his health and with just feeling just totally exhausted. He took a, a year-long furlough back in the U.S., and then he was on his way back, not feeling any better, mind you, but feeling called to continue his missionary work in India and to do it with actually the intellectual castes of India, whereas before he had not been engaging with them. And he knew that his own resources were not up to the task. He says, I was, I was at the end of my resources and my health was shattered. Here I was facing this call and task and yet utterly unprepared for it in every possible way. I saw that unless I got help from somewhere, I would have to give up my missionary career, go back to America and work on a farm to regain my health. It was one of my darkest hours. And then he says, at that time, I was in a meeting at Lucknow while in prayer, not particularly thinking about myself. I just want to point that out. Where was he? While in prayer. So he's at the end of his resources. He's not experiencing the presence of God in the way that I'm sure he would like to. But where was he? He was in prayer. So I offer that up before the rest is that he was following these patterns and practices of relating to the God who is present despite being at the end of his rope. He says, while in prayer, not particularly thinking about myself, a voice seemed to say, are you yourself ready for this work to which I have called you? I replied, no, Lord, I am done for. Which, by the way, should be our answer every time we hear that question from the Lord. Are you ready to live the Christian life today as I have called you? No, Lord, I am done for. I have reached the end of my rope. The voice replied, if you will turn that over to me and not worry about it, I will take care of it. I quickly answered, Lord, I close the bargain right here. And a great peace settled into my heart and pervaded me, and I knew it was done. Life, abundant life, had taken possession of me. And then he continued to labor, he says, almost without any fatigue for years and years to come because of the presence of Christ that he encountered in prayer. God's great gift to us is his presence. May we know that more and more, whether we feel it like E. Stanley Jones did that day or not. He is present and he is life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your presence. What a gift. Help us to grow more and more to posture ourselves in response to your love, to receive your presence, to be attentive to your presence. How grateful we are that your light perpetually shines in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom you have given to us. And how we ask that you would use your presence in our lives to be our deepest joy, but also to grow us into that missionary people who have a light to shine in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.